podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quantitative finance. I'm Mauro Cesar and today I have the great pleasure to talk to two illustrious guests. Both have way too many affiliation to list in full, so I will just give you a brief introduction. We have Alex Lipton, who is a Chief Technical Officer of Scylla Money and a Connection Science Fellow at MIT. Hi, Alex, and welcome. Hello, Maura. Good to hear from you. And we have Marcus Lopez de Prado, who is the co-founder and CIO of uh, True Positive Technologies and professor at Cornell University in New York. Hi, Marcus. Great to have you. Hi, Mauro. Hi, Mauro. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Great to have you both. So I'd like to start on a light note. So I have I've known you both for several years now, and uh, I've always associated your names with uh, very distinct fields in quantitative finance. So Alex, you you with the banking and more recently uh, the technology side and Marcos with uh, investments and data-driven research. Uh, then this year, uh, you started collaborating on multiple fronts, uh, as we'll see today. Uh, may I ask, how did that happen? How did you decide to, to work together? Well, uh, shall I start? Uh, you know, I have been always uh, um, in great uh, admiration of what Marcos have been doing, not least because of his admirable um, pedagogical gifts and ability to express his thoughts very clearly. And uh, at some point, I was reading Marcos' book on um, quantitative investments, and uh, I read through a chapter where he was discussing how to. Um, estimate the sharp ratio of a mean reverting trading strategy using uh, Monte Carlo method. As we all know, it's not an ideal solution, but at least, you know, it works to a point. And at that time, I was very interested in uh, uh, going back to my roots uh, back in the old country in Russia, where I was working on the heat potential methods for a variety of technological applications and it became clear to me that this heat potential methods can be applied to the problem which Marcos uh, described in his book and I got in touch with Marcos and we decided to work on that and that's how our collaboration have started at least as far as I can see and uh, um, it was so pleasant that when the um, COVID struck, we decided that uh, it would be good to work together on this subject as well. And I hope during this podcast, we'll have a chance to talk about it as well. Marcus? Yeah, I might add that uh, Alex is legendary. Uh, we have all known and read and studied Alex, Alex's work for many years. Incidentally, we both work at Citadel around the same time, even though we were in separate teams and, and uh, we didn't get, I didn't get the chance and the privilege of working with Alex at the time. But, uh, you know, uh, it's a, this is more world and uh, uh, life gave me a second chance to finally work with uh, Alex. <laughs> nice, sweet words. Uh, now, let's start talking about uh, the fruits of your collaboration. So Ristonet has just published your joint paper a closed form solution for optimal mirror reverting trading strategies. 
Uh, as the title suggests here, you developed a way to derive the optimal stop loss and profit taking thresholds in a mean reverting market. Uh, this very synthetically, but uh, could you please expand on the problem your paper proposes to solve? Arcus, maybe because it's uh, initiated in your book, you can say a few words and then I will add my two cents. Yeah. So um, the problem of identifying uh, optimal uh, stop out levels um, and, and exit levels is very important to various market participants. When you think of market makers, they are um, liquidity providers, they do not initiate trades. So once they uh, have a position, the question is when is optimal to exit that position? Um, whether it is taking a profit or, or accepting a loss. Execution traders face the same problem. They receive an order. Uh, the order is from a, a market participant who already has a position. And the question is, when is the right time to execute that order? So whether you are an, a liquidity provider or a liquidity consumer, the question of when to exit a position is a critical one. And um, we felt that this was a problem that was not correctly addressed in the literature. In the literature, you can find some papers that, uh, this, that uh, talk about when to enter a position for a particular uh, fixed exit threshold, which is not really a realistic situation uh, for market makers. And other, other parts of the literature discuss um, various um, exit strategies that are not really um, realistic in terms of um, what, what are the options available to market makers and liquidity providers. So we thought that we would um, work on this problem from a very general perspective uh, with realistic assumptions and um, in, in order to provide a solution that is practical to both uh, liquidity providers and liquidity consumers. Yes, and I think Marcus described the situation very um, clearly. The only other thing which I want to point out is that the vast majority of uh, analytical, semi-analytical results in the field is, uh, is de derived under the very unrealistic assumption that the trade will continue indefinitely. And so essentially, you don't really have a time component uh, to account for. Whilst what Marcus and I have done is uh, uh, really uh, aimed at solving this problem for a finite time horizon, which of course makes it uh, considerably more difficult uh, from a technical perspective, but at the same time, uh, much more attractive from a practical perspective. Yeah, and more realistic, I guess. So what is the uh, methodology you use? Could you explain that? Yeah, uh, so uh, we decided to uh, use the classical method of uh, heat potential. This is something which was uh, very popular decades ago, before my, <laughs> before even my time, not to mention Marcus, uh, um, in, um, in Russia in particular, and uh, this is the so-called method of um, heat potentials, which basically in simple terms uh, allows one to reduce a parabolic equation um, with a time-dependent boundary to a Volterra equation of the first kind and, um, you know, solve the problem this way. 
uh, in my book, uh, in our book, you know, uh, having a Voltaire equation with a uh, weak, weakly singular uh, kernel is essentially equivalent to, to solving uh, the problem analytically, giving the power of uh, modern computers. The reason why people were so excited about this methods in the past is that they are super efficient and even uh, without very powerful computers, which was the case um, at the time, you can actually solve extremely complicated problems um, stretching from um, designing a cooling system for nuclear reactors to uh, some other uh, sort of equally challenging uh, problems, right? And so we decided uh, to use it uh, for the purposes of this problem. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that this is the method which I have been working uh, with a graduate student of mine at the University of Oxford, who was uh, studying under me when I was still a professor at Oxford, uh, when I lived in the United Kingdom, uh, Vadim Kaushansky, he kind of wrote um, his thesis, as uh, part of the thesis covers uh, this very topic, and we solved a number of problems with him, including a very challenging and old uh, problem of uh, an describing the heating time probability for an Ornstein-Ollenbeck process uh, of the fl flat or time-dependent barrier, which is embedded naturally in what Marcus and I have been doing. Incidentally, since Marcus mentioned that both he and I um, uh, used to work for Citadel, I have to say that now Vadim is working for Citadel. So it's truly a, a small world, right? Uh, you gave an intuition of what the heat potential method is, but uh, could you draw a parallel on how it can be transported to solve this problem in finance? Uh, yes. In essence, uh, what you say is that a solution of uh, um, the problem you're interested in, which is essentially um, development of a um, Ornstein behavior of the Ornstein-Ullenbeck process in, in a strip. So you have a, a take a profit upper boundary and take loss lower boundary. And so you have to solve this type of problem. Uh, can be reduced to analyzing <coughs> its integral representation where you map everything on the boundary itself. Right. Once you do this, uh, all what's left to be done is to calculate properly what is called the heat potential, this uh, weight of this integral representation. And, what, and that is exactly what Marcos and I have been doing, and we have done it successfully. And as far as we know, nobody had done it before in this context. Interesting. So uh, could you tell me what are the main assumptions on uh, on your model? So you uh, mentioned that uh, you uh, assume uh, asset prices move as a Austin-Hulenbach process. Um, are the assumptions you think realistic enough uh, to be applied in practice? Marcus, yes. would you like to take this one? Yes, I think that the assumption that uh, prices are mean reverting is uh, realistic. Um, at least in the context of intraday trading, which is when execution traders and um, market makers operate. They operate under horizon where they are expected to fulfill an order within the next few minutes or hours. And uh, we know from market microstructure that mean reverting processes 
are uh, theoretically sound uh, in that time framework. Why? Because uh, market impact is temporary. There is a temporary market impact and there is a permanent market impact, but the temporary market impact um, dominates uh, during the short time period when there are um, uh, imbalances in the order flow that push away uh, bids and offers until a market makers come and replenish the liquidity. So from a purely theoretical perspective, uh, Orsten Uhlenbeck processes are, um, are theoretically sound and, and they make sense. The problem that we are addressing is a, is a very practical problem. I think that um, market makers and execution traders have been uh, approaching our problem in the same way. Uh, their solutions were based on numerical methods. So uh, by running Monte Carlo uh, experiments and trying to identify what were the optimal exit uh, points. Um, and what we are contributing is providing an analytical solution, which of course has all the advantages that uh, it allows for a more uh, uh, accurate estimate of the correct exit points. Uh, it saves time, which is critical, of course, uh, in the case of intraday trading. And also it allows for a better understanding of what are the sensitivities of the solution to various inputs. Uh, the only other thing, yeah, I agree with Marcus entirely, but the only other thing I want to add is that, as I mentioned, some um, uh, analytical results are available under the assumption that uh, time horizon is infinite. Under this assumption, of course, it is uh, futile to think that the process is indeed described by um, by an Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process, or at least, you know, by an Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process with constant coefficients, right? So, which is, by the way, not what we assume. We can perfectly can handle um, time-dependent Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process um, because of the nature of the method which we're using. Um, and uh, yes, because of the time horizon which we're interested in, uh, yes, Ornstein, Ullenbeck, or variation potentially, um, you know, some other slightly more general pro processes like uh, including jumps if necessary, uh, is perfectly realistic. So what are the results? How would you summarize them? And how does this method compare to uh, other methods that have been used? Marcus, do you want to take this? Yeah. Well, the results are that um, there are uh, unique solutions. There are uh, for given a set of inputs, um, this, the model identifies the, the correct unique um, combinations of um, uh, profit taking and a stop loss. And also um, very importantly, now we have a better understanding of why these solutions happen to be optimal uh, while controlling for various inputs, whether it is the half-life of the process, the volatility of the process, uh, the underlying uh, uh, trends uh, in the spectre return. So um, in general, um, the, the one very practical approach or implementation of this solution is the following you are an, a market maker or an execution trader, and you are, are, are producing real-time estimates of um, serial correlation in, the, in, in, in microstructural uh, data, 
uh, using uh, executed prices. And based on these um, real-time estimate of the autocorrelation, you derive what is the half-life, you derive what is the volatility of the process, you input these variables in the model, and what you obtain is, is what are the optimal exit levels uh, for a given position. Um, so um, the, the approach is much better than um, what you would get if you run um, Monte Carlo experiments, which would inevitably take much longer than computing the analytical solution, of course. But in addition, um, as Alex rightly pointed, the model does not make unrealistic assumptions. It's, un it's just unrealistic to expect that the market maker can hold the position indefinitely. Typically, they can hold a position for um, a very short period of time, um, and they need to turn the portfolio multiple times within a day. So that's to say that previous analytical, uh, previous analytical solutions um, were not relevant to, to those who would make the assumption that prices follow a North Stein-Ulen process. And yeah. if I may ask, are you already using this, uh, this methodology? I can say that I, in the past, I, I used this methodology um, you, you, through Monte Carlo experiments. And, and in my book, I dedicate one chapter to that. And uh, I, I leave in that chapter uh, as a conjecture the existence of this solution. And uh, when Alex read that chapter, said, yeah, I think that uh, actually there must be a solution and, and we should work together on it. And um, so um, to answer your question, yes, this is something very practical. Uh, market makers uh, and execution traders tackle with, with this problem every day, all the time. And um, we think that this solution is much better than uh, what, is, what has, they have been using so far. Excellent. Now, uh, just to repeat, this paper is online and uh, Risk.net subscribers can access it uh, on, under the CathyNet section. Um, I would like now to switch topic and speak about COVID-19 and the model you have developed on it. Uh, and started like in the, in the previous conversation we had uh, by asking you uh, why you decided to develop your own model for this. There's um, quite a uh, numerous approaches have been proposed uh, over the past three months by uh, epidemiologists, of course, and quants as well. Uh, could you could you tell me a bit of uh, the background of this decision? Uh, yeah, maybe I'll take this one. Um, so um, both Marcus and I were kind of very pleased with the way we um, interacted on this project and we were planning and continue to plan to work very actively on some other um, uh, acute problems of um, asset uh, allocation and asset management. Uh, we even, um, you know, have a joint effort, uh, which we call the Investimizer, aimed at that. But then, you know, the COVID struck and we both felt uh, that it is our civic duty to look into the situation and to try to understand what's going on um, from a quantitative perspective based on our own previous experiences with obviously um, things uh, like um, you know, 
derivatives, um, asset allocation and things like that, but also experiences from the previous life, right? So at least, you know, for, for my part, uh, I have been working on many things from thermonuclear fusion to astrophysics, and I felt that, uh, you know, I can look at the problem at least, you know, as anyone else. Besides, to be perfectly honest, there was another rather strange um, nuanced uh, reason why I, I personally was interested in it. Uh, uh, namely, uh, I'm finishing a book uh, with uh, um, Adrian Tricani from Switzerland on blockchains, um, technology, mathematics, and economics of blockchain. And I have been working on a chapter there to explain the Bitcoin um, dominance uh, index, right? So which shows the um, capitalization of Bitcoin compared to capitalization of all other altcoins. And I concluded, and this was in the end of 2019, before the COVID struck, or at least, you know, when before it struck in the West, uh, that uh, epidemiology would be the best way of describing the behavior of this index. And that's where I learned personally all this SIR, SEIR, and other epidemiology, epidemiological models. So when the city, when all hell broke loose, it became clear to us that uh, some of the very well-established uh, epidemiological models are not really up to scratch, which was rather strange because, you know, both my former colleagues from the Imperial College, where I used to be a professor, and Oxford University, where I also used to be a professor, came up with models, and none of them was uh, satisfactory. So Marcus and I realized that uh, we are dealing with bi-model epidemics, by which I mean that different strata of the population are being affected by the disease in dramatically different fashion. And hence, this has to be accounted for. And uh, surprisingly, it was not accounted for at the time, even by the leading groups, including, say, for example, the group from Harvard, who actually came with the UD model uh, approach to the problem. And so Marcus and I, as well as some other colleagues from the Hebrew University, uh, David Gershon and uh, Hagai Levine, who actually is an epidemiologist. So we started to develop what we call, what Marcus dubbed KSEER model, which is a model with susceptible, exposed, infected, and removed. And K stands for you have K classes. So at the very least, you should have two low risk and high risk, but ideally you should have very low risk, low risk, high risk, and then nursing homes and uh, places like that, which surprisingly, again, uh, standard epidemiological models are not accounting for. And Marcus and I and other colleagues realized that this is the crux of the problem. And that's what we did. We built this model, we did the calculations, and we received our update our results. One other thing which I want to emphasize, and then I will let Marcus to add his thoughts is that uh, we it's super important that you know there is a nebulous uh, parameter in all these epidemiological models are not as everybody calls it right uh, where, where people try to come up with various estimations and so on and so forth uh, for diseases where the sickness is so heavy that it is impossible to miss uh, uh, 
infected individuals, you can probably just count them and sort of come up with the estimation of R0. But for COVID specifically, where there are so many asymptomatic individuals and testing is you know, not particularly well developed, it's kind of pointless to try to estimate R0 looking at the number of new infected and so on, because you just don't know who is infected and who is not. And so our um, you know, claim for fame, if you wish, is that we decided to use a methodology which we borrowed from quantitative finance. So this is indeed a relatively rare instance when quantitative finance directly affects other fields. And we decided to consider R0 as an implicit quality, uh, quantity, similar to the implicit imply, um, implied volatility in black shoals and things like that. And that's what we have done. That's what allowed us to calibrate things to uh, the statistics available, for example, for the city of New York, which is a particularly hard hit um, place. And, uh, you know, we managed to draw some conclusions and I will let Marcus to continue. Hmm? Yeah, well, I, Alex uh, put it very well. Um, it was a combination of uh, civic duty and also our, um, our, our lack of trust in some of the publications that we were seeing um, earlier on when we saw that the World Health Organization, Organization claimed a mortality rate of 3.4%. Uh, that seemed oddly high based on what we were observing. And uh, I'm talking about uh, early March. And um, uh, so we started to uh, run some of our own estimates. At that time, if you remember early March, there were no projections of anything. There were no projections of the number of people who would get sick. There were no projections of the number of people who would die. These projections became public later on in April, but by then, we were all in the dark and we were trying to figure out uh, why are these projections not available? The, the SIR model is a well-established one. It's not hard to calibrate. Why is it that uh, the public is not being informed? And uh, so we started to run our own calculations. And while we were running our own calculations, we realized that the SIR model was not um, correct for the case of COVID-19. COVID-19 is a disease that impacts people differently depending on their pre-existing conditions and, and several um, uh, circumstances. And SIR assumes that the condition impacts everybody equally. So mm. that's when we start to discuss the possibility of having a, an extension uh, of the uh, SIR model, or even better, the SEIR model, where um, the disease impacts differently different uh, segments of the population. And that happens to be critical. Why? Because um, this means that the policies used to, um, to curb the, the expansion of the disease are very differently. When you do not have the ability to target segments of the population con to contain the disease. So we work on, on this model and um, uh, very quickly we realized that they are not that were being discussed in the literature, sometimes, you know, numbers of three or more made no sense. And also mortality rates that um, were discussed in the media and, and even in, in global health agencies um, didn't make sense based on what was being observed. And 
I think that we were among the first to um, recognize that uh, based on the experiences of Iceland and uh, other countries, the um, the mortality rate could not be greater than 0.5%. And at that time, at that point in time, we're talking early April, uh, by the time that we um, started to publish our results, I think that that was uh, one of the lowest estimates out there. Um, today, of course, we know that uh, this estimate happens to be around ballpark, right? The, the, at, the, at the present, uh, health organizations uh, are reporting mortality rates on the overall population of around 0.5%, even less. And that's that's what we were estimating in, in early April. I see. So one of the principles behind this is the uh, bimodal or multimodal, I should say, uh, distribution of um, uh, of people and the way they are uh, impacted by this. Uh, how do you decide the different groups? So are they by age, uh, they by uh, pre-existing health conditions or by say social position? Obviously it has a big impact for those working in the uh, front line. Uh, how many groups did you identify? Uh, well, it depends on the circumstances and so essentially uh, since Look, you have to understand that typically the collectives of scientists working on this type of papers, uh, you know, enormous. All these papers have at least 20, 30 authors. And so here it's a two-man show and with our Israeli colleagues, maybe four-man show. But, uh, you know, we don't have the bandwidth, frankly, to do the sort of very detailed analysis. So we, we restrict ourselves to the situation of two or four um, classes and essentially in the four class uh, four group model we have uh, school children uh, low risk um, adults uh, uh, high risk adults uh, which means uh, senior citizens and then very high risk adults uh, essentially people who live in assistance care living facilities and uh, places like that plus uh, people with uh, you know, comorbidity conditions, which are particularly dangerous uh, for the disease. In principle, um, the model can be expanded much further because its general pr construction, general principles are very sound because we figured out how to mm, construct a plausible interaction matrix between different groups of the population. That is the crux of the model and it's not as easy as it sounds because uh, you know you have to be mm, mm, you have to preserve symmetry principles in other words even if sort of the number of contacts within say a low risk group uh, within itself is say 80% and say 20% with high risk and in the high risk group it may be 50% within the group and 50% outside what you do need to preserve is the number total number of contacts between the group and it's not as simple to do but we found a, a nice uh, methodologically sound approach to this problem and so essentially you can build uh, stratification and as as many groups as, as you would like to but uh, you have to have a good data and that's something because Marcus is a data man I will let him venture uh, his frustration but I will just say that in some sense 
splitting into finer subgroups become futile for the reason which is quite prosaic. The actual available data is abysmal. And in New York, it's slightly better just because, unfortunately, the magnitude of the disease is much higher than it should have been. And so there, at least, you know, you have data about hospitalizations and mortality, which are the only reliable pieces of information. But in some other countries, for example, in Sweden, you essentially only have um, data about mortality and very little about hospitalization. And we, we did not just go and took the standard source of our world in numbers or something like that. I actually went to the Swedish website and read everything in Swedish, which is available. And it's it's lacking. It's really lacking. And also, if you look at the variation of, say, mortality data in Sweden, you will see that uh, the statistics is so bad that they essentially show that nobody dies on uh, Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays, and then essentially everybody dies on Thursday, which, of course, is not a reflection of real situation on the ground, but rather the fact that uh, even the fable, you know, the Swedish statistical kind of facilities are not good enough to simply allocate properly the death uh, certificates by the date uh, when they were issued and stuff like that. So I will let Marcus to add more to this <laughs> very, very important issue. Because yeah, because indeed the uniformity of uh, data was uh, uh, flagged as a problem very early on, already in March, uh, countries right. were reporting data in different ways, so it was difficult to get an aggregate view of what was going on. Uh, but please, Marco, go ahead. Yeah, one of our frustrations is that pandemics are relatively normal. They are recurrent events. Um, uh, in the 20th century, we had um, five very strong flu pandemics, and that's just for flu-related pandemics. Uh, there are pandemics associated with non-respiratory diseases and infections. Um, uh, back, it, to your, back to your model. What is the output that you get from it? So is it the mortality rate? Is it the uh, rate of infection? Uh, more of that? Uh, well, look, our model covers uh, things uh, like uh, the um, reproductive number. It allows you to calculate implied uh, probability of dying, as well as all other mm, very important things like hospitalization rate, uh, rate of uh, utilization of intensive care units. That was the all important uh, argument, um, you know, for the introduction of lockdowns and things of that nature. And uh, you can calculate, for example, how many intensive care units you need to have per million of population in order to avoid lockdown based on sort of assumptions that the purpose of the lockdown is flattening of the curve and things like that. And uh, yeah, our model is uh, powerful enough to do all this. And uh, for instance, uh, with the colleagues from the Hebrew University, we did it for Israel, say. And, uh, you know, you can see very clearly that you need, I don't know, how many um, ICU beds per million population, you know, in order to maintain um, you know, health system uh, not to be overflown and, and all other uh, characteristics, right? So the fact that they are all implied um, and, the, you know, it's, it's very, very powerful. It's also super interesting in our latest paper with Marcus, which we posted on SSRN 
uh, just very recently, right? So it's a kind of second iteration of the original paper, which we posted very, very early, in fact, like as early as the 9th of April, I suppose, right? So there is uh, the set of scenarios which Center for Disease Control has introduced uh, for analyzing the impact of COVID uh, on going forward. I was astonished to see that our preliminary estimations of all these parameters, probability of hospitalization, probability of getting into an ICU unit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are extremely close to what the Center for Disease Control actually came up with after a while. So that's a little bit of a vindication of our methodology, I think, and uh, a very promising, a very promising um, indication that in general we're barking at the right tree. Hmm? <laughs> um so obviously this is a tool that you envisage being useful for policymakers. Um, but how about, uh, say, decision making in the, the investment um, environment? Obviously you, Marcus, uh, are one. Uh, do, you, uh, do you deploy this, uh, this methodology to um, observe what is happening with the pandemic and uh, take investment decision based on this as well? Yeah, it has that application as well. Um, once you have a good model to understand how big uh, a, a condition could be, how bad a, a pandemic could get, that has, of course, investment implications as well. Um, it also um, allows you to benchmark the actions of government agencies versus what would be the best possible solution um, and why? Well, that that tells you that um, if you understand what government agencies are going to do, uh, um, and compare it with what they should do, now you understand how much worse the problem can get. So it it, it has also that application in terms of um, helping investors make more informed decisions. I should say that the model is. Um, it, our paper is a, in nature a mathematical contribution. It's not a paper explicitly for COVID-19, even though, of course, COVID-19 is the way we apply the, the approach. But we believe that uh, the case year model will become very useful in the future, not only when COVID-19 reappears in the year 2021, etc., but uh, in the future, whenever we face a situation where a condition impacts differently different uh, segments of the population. Also, one thing that I might say to add what Alex mentioned earlier is that um, not only the model is able to um, uh, to determine differently how different groups are impacted by the condition, but also it's able to take into account the various important variables in order to determine the mortality of the different segments of the population. So for instance, this, uh, the spare capacity at hospitals, how many beds are there? Um, how, what is the latency of the disease? How long it takes for someone who has been um, infected to develop the symptoms and for how long they are going to be contagious? Um, so they, the, what are the interactions between the, the groups? So the model uh, is able to incorporate many important aspects that the um, the standard 
SIR model or the standard SEER uh, model ignore. So we think that uh, this is a step in the right direction and we hope that uh, health agencies will find this contribution useful. Very interesting. Um, I would like to go towards the conclusion by uh, asking you something uh, related to this subject. In April this year, you wrote an opinion piece in Risk, and uh, among other points that you made there, you said that quants and fund managers should give much more attention to now casting as opposed to uh, forecasting, of course. Um, if you were to do now casting right now, where would you say we are in the economic and financial cycle uh, in the US, Europe, globally, wherever you can, you can look at it? Uh, Marcus, would you like to tell me? Well, um, right now, as, as we can see, there is a, 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 a uncertainty coming back. Uh, that's something that you can observe in terms of not only volatility, but also how weak um, the bids and the offers um, have become in, in recent days. That's, of course, something that uh, is related also to the sentiment uh, that you can now cast from the news. So uh, the important is to recognize that forecasting is very useful when you have limited information, right? When you have limited information, the best you can do is you can use lag observations in or, and, and uh, impose some sort of a structure that happens to work well in the long run in order to make a prediction. That's how most investors made informed decisions in the past. Uh, now in the present, we have access to much more information, real-time information, and this means that forecasting becomes less relevant, less useful. Um, a typical example would be uh, now casting of, of inflation. So for many decades, uh, central banks have forecasted uh, inflation by uh, applying uh, complex um, and also unrealistic um, econometric models that essentially look at um, electricity consumption and um, um, industrial production, unemployment and other things in order to forecast inflation. So yes, of course, uh, there is a, some connection between unemployment rate and inflation. Uh, there is some connection between electricity consumption and, infla and inflation, but guess what? It's a relatively weak connection. How about um, uh, web scraping millions of prices uh, from retailers on a daily basis. Well, that gives you uh, not a prediction of inflation, that gives you a real-time estimate of inflation. And I think that's where finance is going. We are trying to be less, um, we rely less on horoscopes and we want to be more like uh, the doctors who measure your pulse and your um, blood pressure when you go to the hospital, right? So the, the role of the doctor is not so much to predict whether uh, you will have a condition, but to detect very early on when you have a condition and act appropriately. And, and, and the value of now casting is that it allows you to adjust and make corrections to, to your positions uh, very early on, which is almost as good as having a perfect foresight. Alex, same question uh, to you. Uh, where would you uh, say now casting would tell us we are in the economic cycle? Well, uh, the economy right now is uh, uh, in a rather dire 
situation, to be perfectly honest. If you look at uh, um, the historical data, um, you will see that the level of contraction of the economy over the last um, quarter uh, is not exactly unprecedented, but certainly one of the highest on record, right? So the higher was, was during the Second World War, which of course, uh, from the standpoint of destruction of um, life and property was infinitely bigger event, right? So I sincerely hope that, um, you know, we managed to get out of this uh, predicament um, as soon as we physically can, uh, but um, I am not particularly hopeful, right? So I think that right now in the United States, we have about 44 million unemployed. That is an unprecedented number. And um, unfortunately, I'm worried that uh, a proportion of this unemployed will stay unemployed for a very long time. So some of the people, of course, mercifully will go back to work and, you know, for the intermediate moment, you know, the, there are extraordinary measures which increase unemployment payments and stuff like that. But unfortunately, there would be a group of people who will stay unemployed for a much, much longer time or maybe never find employment again. It's, 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 it's a very blunt and, uh, um, you know, how should I put it? unintelligent uh, approach to the situation, right? So with some colleagues from Stanford University and the University of Chicago and the University of Southern California, uh, we published an opinion piece in The Hill, which is a newspaper in Washington, D.C., where we argue that, in fact, we're not comparing lives saved by the measures against economic losses, but in reality, it's lives versus lives. That's also something which Marcus mm -hmm. and I have express uh, mathematically in our latest paper there is a section there which is called lives versus lives and unemployment unemployment by itself kills let me make it absolutely certain that you know among the unemployed population the mortality increases by at least 60 percent if not more and then of course the fact that medical system is not operational uh, adds uh, a lot of other kind of sources of death. Uh, extra unexplained mortality, so to speak, is much, much higher than just mortality due to COVID. So um, in my mind, uh, swift measures are needed in order to restart the economy, because as I said, it's not a pure economic thing. It's a thing of social justice, and if you wish, racial justice as well, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, we sincerely hope uh, that our model will help, uh, if not this time, then at least next time when a, a pandemic struck, which is inevitable. They come, unfortunately, they come uh, with uh, periodicity, which is hard to predict as such, but nevertheless, they come again and again. And, um, you know, we need to be much better prepared, frankly, than we have been so far. Hmm? Indeed, indeed. Marcos, Alex, thank you very much. This has been very informative and insightful. Um, obviously, uh, this has been uh, uh, recorded remotely. Uh, I hope we'll be uh, able to catch up in person soon. In fact, I'll see I'll see you, um, Marcos, uh, indeed virtually uh, in a month or so, in occasion of uh, our event that you will open, uh, Quant Summit Virtual in New York. Uh, but after that, I hope 
things will go back to in-person meetings again. And uh, I thank you both for participating to this. It's been great. So thank you, Alex. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Mauro. It was a pleasure as always. Goodbye. Thank you, Mauro. Always good to talk to you. And thanks, everybody, for listening.